0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, continued 4. Well, today we are going to continue our careful and deliberate study in Matthew chapter 5 the Sermon on the Mount. Now last week we spent our entire time together on those pivotal verses Matthew 5, 17-20 because these form the basis and the backstop for understanding everything that Yeshua is going to state starting in verse 21 and proceeding until the end of His sermon through chapter 7, and even more, those crucial verses necessarily apply to everything Jesus will say or do during His entire earthly ministry on earth and when He returns. This is because they are not merely words that add to our understanding. They set down an important governing dynamic Around which Christianity and Messianic Judaism must develop its doctrines and faith principles. Now we're going to spend some time reviewing. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, uh, today we'll be on page uh, 1228. That's where we're going to start. Going to review uh, verses 17 through 20. Don't think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the Prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a yud or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these Meetsfolk commands and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the Kingdom of Heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the early church father, Chrysostom, well, he wasn't a fan of the Jewish element of Scripture, we'll put it that way. Nonetheless, he was a studious man. And so he makes this comment in his ancient commentary on Matthew. Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets, Matthew 5, verse 17. Why? Who suspected this? Or who accused him that he should make a defense against this charge? I mean, since surely from what had gone before, no such suspicion was generated. For to command men to be meek and gentle and merciful and pure in heart, and to strive for righteousness, indicated no such design, but rather altogether the contrary. Now, for a person who was wed to the idea that in some manner or way Christ could on the one hand forcefully and legitimately declare he did not come to destroy the Law of the Prophets, but on the other hand proceed in the remainder of his sermon to issue new and greater laws, this question that Chrysostom was, a- was asking was not rhetorical. Rather Chrysostom was not only perplexed by Yeshua's statement, but also then had to figure out how to defend the already deeply embedded church doctrine that in the Sermon on the Mount Jesus had indeed created a new law of Jesus to supersede the law of Moses. So using Chrysostom's question as our starting point, let's discuss how best to answer it. Typically, Christian institutional leaders such as bishops, priests, academics, and pastors find that they're out or their way around Jesus' statements uh, statement of Matthew 5:17 is by quoting Paul. It's not my intent to offend, but the evidence is strong that for many centuries the tagline, used nearly uh, universally within Christianity that the Church is the Church of Jesus Christ, that's not really accurate. Rather it is, and it has been since at least the 4th century, the Church of Paul. It is Paul's words that form the bulk of Church doctrine. And they are also used, of course, to defend those same doctrines. So very often Paul's words get twisted or taken out of their biblical or historical Jewish context and then they are applied in inappropriate ways. At other times, his words are used as a tool to cancel out or to modify Yeshua's words as recorded in the Gospels. And that's so a desired church doctrine can be maintained. Let me put it another way. The church has decided that in some cases, the conclusions and instructions of the disciple, Paul, are more definitive, correct, and of higher value than the conclusions and instructions of his master, Yeshua. My response to this is that even should we find that Paul's words indeed contradict Christ, then it is Christ's words that are to be taken as truth and Paul's words should be dismissed as false. But to be clear, in no way am I saying that Paul's words contradict Christ's anywhere in the New Testament, nor that his words are sometimes false. I'm only saying that because the church uses Paul as the vehicle to establish some clearly unbiblical doctrine, then hypothetically, if contradiction with Christ was the case, which it's not, then the church would still be wrong for accepting Paul's words as the source of correct doctrine over and above Yeshua's. Now, the neutralizer that the Church regularly uses to override Christ's pivotal statement in Matthew 5.17 that utterly destroys perhaps the most central Church doctrine, a doctrine that in practice is second only to Jesus being the divine Messiah, is found in Romans 10.4. There it says, For Christ is the end of the Law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So the Church says that this statement of Paul makes it clear that the doctrine that Christ ended, terminated the Law, is correct. Now, Generally, it's explained that even though Christ didn't abolish the Law, He ended it yeah i'm getting a lot of smiles out there kind of silly isn't it i mean if ever there was an excellent example of american gibberish that's got to be it i mean such a position statement as that one just does not hold water so is this really what paul said and what he meant that is despite what his master said he claims that the laws ended now, if this is the case, then as believers, boy, we're put in the uncomfortable position of having to choose between believing and accepting either Matthew 5.17 as truth or Romans 10.4 as truth. And the church has for centuries chosen to believe and accept Romans 10.4 over Matthew 5.17. Now In Greek, the word in Romans 10.4 that is being translated to end is telos, telos. It is an interesting word that can indeed mean end, but it is also used to mean a toll or a customs duty to be paid. In other words, a telos is paid for merchants bringing their goods to their customers. Even the English word end itself can have multiple meanings. In our modern English it can mean to finish, like the words the end are meant to convey as a movie concludes, and yet not in the sense that the movie is now eliminated, not in the sense the movie is now destroyed, but rather its content and purpose has been attained and there's no more. Or end can also mean to achieve a goal. We regularly say things to each other like, well, our end purpose is to achieve such and such. Or the end of all of our efforts is to achieve so and so. Well, Those sayings of course do not mean that we intend to terminate something. So how are we to take telos? As used in Paul's statement regarding the law. Well, the Greek philosopher Aristotle lived four centuries before Paul. And he said this about the word telos human telos is our goal to be faithful. Interesting. Human telos is our goal to fulfill. The academic field of teleology is the study of telos, and teleology is defined as a study of people and objects with a view to their aims and purpose and intentions. Some Greek lexicons try to best explain the word by saying that telos means end in the sense of attaining a goal, attaining a purpose. Now, As you can readily see, the concept of terminating or of permanently stopping is simply not part of the meaning of telos. I think the complete Jewish Bible has chosen a better word than end to translate telos because it better fits with our modern English language. in the sense of what words mean to us in our era, for the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. Now, This translation, which by the way is known among Bible translators as a dynamic translation, communicates to we moderns what the ancient Paul meant. By what he said, and how others who read or hear his words would have understood it in their day. By merely discarding the word end as meaning terminating or termination, something which the Greek word telos does not intend, and replacing it with the word game or uh, rather uh, goal or aim or purpose, which is what the word telos does intend, suddenly Paul is not overturning Messiah's words spoken at the Sermon on the Mount. That is, we truly don't have a conflict between Yeshua and Paul. It is that Paul has simply been misinterpreted by the Church or more likely misrepresented in an effort to prove that the Torah and the Law is not for Gentile believers. Well, now let's try to answer Chrysostom's question from another angle. Is it possible that Christ could legitimately overturn the Torah? Pretty big question. Or as some who accept that He didn't abolish the Torah but still try to make a tortured case for a sort of middle ground whereby the Torah Law exists, but it is not enforced because of Christ, or that He did override certain earlier commands but with like kind ones, but they were higher and greater representing the new and the next state of the spiritual world due to His coming. Could either of these be what He did? In a word, no. Listen to Deuteronomy 4.2. In order to obey the mitzvot, the commands of Adonai your God which I am giving you, do not add to what I am saying, and do not subtract from it. A little later on in Deuteronomy in 13.1. Everything I am commanding you, you are to take care to do, do not add to it or subtract from it. In Matthew 5.18, Christ follows up with what He just said in verse 17 that He did not come to abolish the Law, so that therefore there could be no misunderstanding. In Matthew 5.18, Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth pass away, not so much as a uterus stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened, therefore it cannot be that changing the meaning of the Torah Laws, or adding a few more Torah Laws, is what Christ was doing following His words of Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Otherwise, guess what? He is breaking one of the most basic commandments of the Torah as we find it in Deuteronomy. If He had tried to do that, well, the crowd he is speaking to would have recognized it immediately and reacted. Assuming that the Apostle John is correct and that Christ is the Word, then Christ would be going against His own previous Word if He were to add to it, or abolish it, or embellish parts of it. But even more, if we conclude that Christ is God on earth indeed can and DID change the supposedly unbreakable Divine Commandments given centuries earlier to Moses, then why couldn't He or someone else come along someday and undo the Divine Commandments that He gave us 2000 years ago with even newer ones? In a sense, that is what the Latter-day Saints claim has happened something that mainstream Christianity denies is possible. So in order to comply NOT with Christian doctrine, but rather to comply with plainly read Holy Scripture, then we must find another explanation for Chrysostom of what it was exactly that Jesus was doing in His sermon, starting at verse 21, and based upon His unequivocal statement of Matthew 5, 17-19 that He not only did not come to abolish or destroy the Law in total, but it was also not His purpose to change even one letter in one word of it. Not even one! We must also answer why Yeshua anticipated that there would be suspicion and accusation by some in the crowd who might think that he was changing the torah laws and thus dishonoring moses davies and allison in their incredible commentary on this matter of critical importance to our faith put it this way consequently matthew 5:17 through 20 by jesus upholding the law has a twofold effect It defends Jesus and Matthew, first, from the accusation, no doubt made by non-Christian Jews, that they had dismissed the Torah, and second, from the claim, certainly made by some early Christians, that Jesus had set His followers free from the Law. For our evangelist, Matthew, the Old Testament has not been drained of its ancient life, It is not just a precious cemetery, it is still the living, active Word of God. Now, To help Christostom and us understand exactly what it was that Yeshua did and meant by what He said up on that hill overlooking the Galilee, let's keep reading. In Matthew chapter 5. So open your Bibles back up to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to start reading at verse 21 and take it to the end. Start on page 1228 again. You have heard that our fathers were told, Do not murder, and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. I tell you that anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment that whoever calls his brother you good for nothing will be brought before the Sanhedrin, that whoever says fool incurs the penalty of burning in the fire of Gehenom. So if you are offering your gift at the temple altar and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift where it is by this altar and go make peace with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. If someone sues you, come to terms with him quickly, while you and he are on the way to court, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer of the court, and you may be thrown in jail. Yes, indeed, I tell you, you will certainly not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now You have heard that our fathers were told, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, A man who even looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than to have your whole body thrown into Gehenom. And if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off and throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into Gehenom. It was said Whoever divorces his wife must give her a get. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of fornication, makes her an adulteress, and that anyone who marries a divorcee commits adultery. Again, you have heard that our fathers were told, Do not break your oath and keep your vows to Adonai, but I tell you not to swear at all, not by heaven, because it's God's throne, not by earth because it is His footstool and not by Yerushalayim, because it is the City of the Great King. Don't swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black. Just let your Yes be a simple Yes, your No a simple No. Anything more than this has its origin in evil. You have heard that our fathers were told, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if somebody hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. If someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for 1 mile, carry it for 2. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When something wants to borrow, someone wants to borrow something from you, lend it to him. You have heard that our fathers were told, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Then you will become children of your Father in heaven. For He makes His sun shine on good and bad people alike. He sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. What reward do you get if you love only those who love you? Why even tax collectors do that? And if you are friendly only to your friends, are you doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the goyim, even the Gentiles do that. Therefore be perfect, just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Verse 21 begins by quoting the 6th commandment, oh. sometimes it is the 5th commandment depending upon who is doing the numbering. And the commandment is, Thou shalt not murder. However Yeshua sets up His audience for controversy by prefacing that commandment with these words, You have heard that our fathers were told, Do not murder, and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. Now, In reality, the term our fathers, as used in the complete Jewish Bible, is not there in the Greek manuscripts. Rather, the literal rendering is, Ye heard that it was said to the ancients, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever may kill shall be in danger of the judgment. I think it's a mistake to substitute our fathers for the ancients. Now, For one reason, especially Gentile Christians think of our fathers as meaning people from the not too distant past but this is actually speaking about people from a long time ago in this case it's a general reference to the people who were with moses at mount sinai and maybe the tradition rather the uh, generation shortly thereafter the point being that yeshua is not addressing the traditions of the elders which was at the center of what the average jew was taught At the synagogue they attended. Rather, Yeshua was directing his comments concerning some of the commandments of the biblical Torah, Holy Scripture. However, the people were weak in actual Torah knowledge, and like so many Christians that substitute their particular denominational doctrines for biblical instruction, they do so believing that the traditions and doctrines they believe are indeed one and the same as what the Bible teaches. I want to give you a common example of this. Cleanliness is next to godliness. That doesn't exist in the Bible. Spare the rod, spoil the child. That isn't in the Bible either, but most Christians think that both sayings are. Let me give you another example. Christmas is the holiest day of the year. That ought to offend a bunch of you. That doesn't exist in the Bible either. Rather, Christmas is another man-made Christian tradition that has been holified by men, not by God. We talked in an earlier lesson about mental filters. The Jews had mental filters that incorporated the Jewish tradition that they had been taught. Thus, when Christ begins to speak about the Torah in his sermon, the crowd had little to compare his words to except this hybrid mix of tradition and scripture. That they had been taught at their synagogue. They had no Bibles in their possession. Now, when I talk to you about tradition, whether Jewish or Christian, do not think that I'm against tradition in general. Not. Traditions have their place in our lives, they can be beautiful and appropriate ways to express our faith. To help us to remember important tenets of our belief. And they can also fill in some large blanks in order to carry out commandments to observe biblical festivals, for example, although nearly no details are provided in Scripture that tells us just how we're to observe them. See, here's the issue. There's nothing wrong with traditions until they are turned into rigid doctrines and rules, and then inevitably they are deemed God-ordained or holy, but that's in order to enforce them. Or the Traditions replace command, observance, or action that indeed is God-ordained. In some ways Yeshua is dealing with that now in the Sermon on the Mount. He was going to do the same thing later in a few other scenarios, including the Sabbath day controversy that he had with the Pharisees when he and his disciples were picking the heads off wheat while walking through a field on Shabbat. We'll get to that in a few chapters. So after bringing up the Sixth Commandment And introducing it as something the ancients were told. Christ says, But I tell you. And then he elaborates. See, here's the rub of it the way this phrase is translated, it sounds to us like what he's saying is, But instead, I tell you. That is, what was said centuries earlier in the Torah do not murder is either a mistake and yeshua was correcting it or it's incomplete so it needs explanation or it's being changed now part of the reason for this misperception is with the greek word de that is regularly translated as but but i tell you this same word can also mean and yet, can also mean and in the sense of adding something. So Jesus' statement can be taken to mean, but in addition, I tell you. Now, so in the first insta- instance, the interpretation is that the newer replaces the older. The second instance, the newer adds to the older. I can't accept either of these possibilities, because they both tamper with the original commandment that God gave through Moses, one of which says that the Torah laws are not to be added to or subtracted from. Rather I view Yeshua as doing exactly what He said in verse 17. He came to fulfill the Torah. He came to fill it to the full. He came to give us the deepest sense of its intent and meaning, I'll say this slightly differently. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to your ancestors, we need to pause, we need to focus on the words, you have heard. You have heard. And the thousands of Jews sitting before him indeed had heard, do not murder. This wasn't new to them. They'd already heard it probably countless times. So, after acknowledging that they'd already heard all this, Christ now gives them the fuller intent and essence of the sixth commandment. Now, as we've yet to examine any of the instructions that follow, but I tell you, here's what I want you to have firmly in your minds as we go through six different case examples that Yeshua uses to teach something very, very important. Intent matters as much as the action. Let me say it again, intent matters as much as the action. That is in verses 21-48. to Yeshua is not extending the meaning of the commandment or rule to something else. He is not contradicting the Torah. He's not criticizing the standard way that the ordinary Jews sitting before him think of the commandment or the rule. He's not using his divine authority to add or modify rules. What he is doing is telling them and us that we are not only to have purity of body that's easily accomplished, but part and parcel with it is purity of mind and intent. And that's a lot harder! We are not to only physically and strictly Follow the law and command, you know, that can be accomplished with a, bit, with a little bit of effort and diligence. But part and parcel with it, we are also to let a godly attitude rule over our behavior. That's a lot more difficult. We are to be obedient to Jehovah's will while also striving to avoid sin as much as is humanly possible. We are to love God and love our fellow man friend or enemy yet it is to be accomplished unselfishly without regard for what's in it for us in other words while the letter of the law the torah hasn't changed at all everything that is written commanded in the torah is still expected even of Yeshua's followers, it is the Spirit of the Law and the Spirit of the God-worshipper working together. That is the ultimate purpose and essence of the Law. The letter of the Law doesn't of itself produce life, or renewed life, in fact doing all the things that the Torah requires at any given moment without regard to circumstance may not even always be beneficial. So with the first example being the commandment not to murder, then Yeshua is saying that without too much difficulty we can all keep from murdering an individual who has shamed us or perhaps done us harm, but (laughs) can we refrain from anger? Can we refrain from from resentment or even hating that same person? See, The new goal that Yeshua puts before the people listening to Him is not conformity, it's perfection. As he says at the end of chapter 5 and verse 48 when he concludes his six case examples, therefore be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. See, We can follow rules and do works very well if we put our minds to it, but that certainly won't necessarily produce love, may not produce the spirit and attitude that Christ requires of us, certainly does not impute the needed righteousness upon us that can only come from God as a gift to us. Therefore, in verse 22, Yeshua says that simply not murdering somebody is insufficient. I mean, do you think yourself godly because you haven't murdered somebody? Well, we must also not have anger in our hearts. The anger is the wellspring of murder we are to subdue not just our urges, but also the place deep within us where these wrong urges come from, our evil inclination. That said, there is an interesting problem with this instruction. If you look at the King James Version, and perhaps the majority of Bible translations, we are going to find the phrase without cause included. That is, Jesus' instruction is we are not to be angry with our brother without cause. The complete Jewish Bible does not include this phrase, nor does the NAS, the NAB, and a host of other very good Bibles. So does this mean that some translators have added the phrase? or that others have refused to include the phrase for some reason? Does it mean that some ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts have the phrase included and others don't? Doesn't it make the anger instruction considerably easier to follow, when instead of any anger for any reason being deemed as wrong, a justifiable anger is allowed as an exception. See, this problem has been noticed in research for a very long time. Without getting into all the gory details, I can tell you that going back all the way to the fourth century, we find evidence in the form of New Testament fragments that supports both readings. That is, some manuscripts included without cause, others didn't. However, we also find that the early Church Fathers Origen and Cyprian, who lived in the 3rd centuries, had copies of the Gospel of Matthew that included the phrase without cause. This is the oldest evidence that currently exists to try and come to the bottom of this matter, but that doesn't make it conclusive. In Cyprian's, Cyprian's treatise number 12, book three point uh, three uh, eight, he records this, Also in the Gospel according to Matthew you have heard that it was said by the ancients you shall not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be guilty of the judgment. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause Shall be guilty of judgment. Origin writes a quote from Matthew in his Homilies on the Song of Songs. It was said of them of old, Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without reason shall be held guilty. So assuming without cause was originally included in Matthew, then what amounts to a justifiable anger for anger against our brother. But even before that question, what does Jesus mean by brother? Angry with His brother? Does it mean a follower of His? Does it mean any fellow Jew? Does it mean any human being in general? In the Jewish community the term brother carried a few meanings and it is from the Jewish perspective that we must view it. Now although the Greek is Adelphos, it's translating the Hebrew Ach, and the two words are virtually synonymous. They both can mean a biological sibling or a family sibling, in other words like a step or an adopted brother. It can mean a close friend, can mean anyone who is part of a defined community, or similar to the way the Church uses the term brother today, it can mean a fellow member of a local spiritual community, or it can be a rather general term of affection. Now, it's my opinion that this is not referring to a fellow believer. Why do I believe that? Because Yeshua was not speaking to a crowd of believers. In fact, he hadn't yet made known the fullness of his identity as the God-sent Messiah Savior. He was currently viewed by the Jewish populace as a Sodik, a miracle-working holy man. But because this is Matthew the Jew who is writing this account, and because the crowd was almost exclusively Jews, It is very likely that the Jewish crowd took this to mean fellow Jews, while Yeshua probably meant fellow human beings, because certainly the law against murder didn't apply only to Jews. And anger, well, that's universal to all mankind. Now, going forward, Assuming that Christ meant fellow human being when he said brother, not just a select few people, then the question is what amounts to a justifiable cause to have anger with another human being? The standard answer is that a righteous anger is justifiable. I want to repeat it's not even certain. That the words without cause were part of what Christ said. Well, since this is just impossible to know for certain, rather than focusing on the justifiable versus unjustifiable anger issue, it's more profitable if we focus on the important matter of someone nursing anger against his fellow, which, under certain circumstances, or perhaps under all circumstances, means he faces judgment just as if he would committed the actual murder. I will tell you that many, maybe most, commentators feel that this statement has to have been intended as hyperbole, an intended exaggeration, that was done in order to highlight a point. Because, you know, it seems beyond reasonable or rational that merely being angry angry without outwardly expressing it in any way should exact the same deadly penalty as when the criminal act of murder occurs. In verse 22, three examples are given where anger must be avoided or remedied as the top priority in Yeshua's eyes. With the penalty for not doing so, being defaced, God's wrath, or even being thrown into a fiery hell. That's what Gehenom is getting at. This answer, rather, this anger can take the form of name calling, saying, Raka, which is probably an Aramaic loanword that best translates to good for nothing, or saying to someone, Fool. Is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? Seems to me that what Yeshua is doing is essentially creating the bullseye in the center of the target of perfection. What we're told, or rather, when we're told to be perfect in verse 48, what is perfection? What is perfection for us? What does it look like? Is perfection doing the law flawlessly? Is it having a righteous attitude and mindset? Yeshua is telling His audience that already well knows that from a physical and from a legal standpoint, the Jewish religious standpoint, perfection is defined as following the Law of Moses without blemish. But Christ seems to be telling his audience that while this is good, it's not good enough for the kind of righteousness we each must attain in order to avoid God's eternal judgment. Even thinking in a way that is angry, or simply calling someone a fool or good-for-nothing makes one subject to God's wrath. Is all that fair? Did not God Himself create us not only as sentient but also emotional beings? Can mere human beings possibly achieve such absolute perfection? Theoretically. Even spiritually, yes. Practically, humanly, no. Without saying so, Yeshua is building a case for the irreplaceable need for salvation by grace. Salvation through Him. Do you see it happening? No one. No one, not even the original 12 disciples, no one could ever meet the standard he is setting out in the Sermon on the Mount, even though they and we are encouraged to strive for it. In fact, I imagine that many in that crowd on the hill above the Sea of Galilee scoffed at his words, and maybe they even left discouraged. They thought if he is serious about what he's saying, then there's no hope for me because no one could ever meet such a standard. Even the venerated Moses got angry, he threw the tablets of the Ten Commandments to the ground and he broke them into pieces. In verses 23 and 24, Yeshua gives another example of what to do when anger is at work. But this time, it's not anger in you. Rather, it's the anger in your brother. And the idea is that there's been some kind of an issue between two people. And while the one seems to have kind of moved on from it, the other one, one called brother, has not. And the subject then is reconciliation. Some go so far as to call this a short parable, because it cannot be a real life situation. A worshiper, a worshiper cannot leave a sacrifice at the temple altar and go away and spend the time to make peace with a fellow Jew and then come back later, pick a sacrifice back up and make the ritual. Doesn't work that way. The point that is being made is that there are higher virtues than making sacrifices, and among those are reconciliation among your fellows, and then obedience to God. First Samuel fifteen twenty-two. Shmuel Samuel says, "Does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices?" As in obeying what Adonai says. Surely obeying is better than sacrifice, heeding orders than the fat of rams. I mean, to be clear, nothing Samuel said or Christ is saying in any way diminishes the value of the Torah ordained temple worship or sacrifices. Rather, they're saying it's always better not to sin in the first place. Than it is to sin and then need a sacrifice to seek forgiveness. Kind of common sense, isn't it? Who is your brother in this instance? There's no consensus on this, but I feel certain that from the simple, literal standpoint, Peshat, Yeshua can only mean Jews, because at this time, only Jews could be involved in temple sacrifices. That's the example he's using. From a bit deeper reading, however, there is a hint, Remez, that in another sense, one's brother is any fellow human being. That is, when one sacrifices, is for the purpose of atonement. It's for the purpose of seeking forgiveness from God. Therefore, the principle is that one must reconcile and be at peace with one's fellow man before seeking forgiveness from God. Obviously, this has logical limitations. We can only be at peace with those who agree to be at peace with us. This principle would have rung true to the ears of Yeshua's audience since this concept was already part of the Jewish religious social fabric. In the Mishnah Yom 8.9 we read this, Yom Kippur atones for a person's transgressions against God, but it does not atone for his transgressions against his fellow man until he appeases him. Where Yeshua seems to have raised the degree of difficulty for His followers is that in Judaism then and now it was the offender who was obligated to make peace with the offended? And it seems here that the offended too has an obligation to actively seek reconciliation. Christ completes his treatise on anger and on reconciliation with verses 25 and 26, and he does so using a judicial setting or better, in a setting that might normally lead to a judicial trial, but it ought not to. Once again notice the words. It is not if you sue someone, rather it's if someone sues you. Thus, it is that someone has something against you. And there's no language that explains whether one party or the other is at fault. Just because somebody has something against you doesn't mean they're right. Since the last words are until you have paid the last penny, then clearly the example assumes the matter of an unpaid debt. And under the Torah law, even under Jewish law, halakha, one is not to be jailed for defaulting on a debt. However, Roman justice was often appealed to by Jews in that era, especially on matters of money and debt. We see a somewhat different example of this appeal to Roman justice when a crowd of Jews appealed to Pontius Pilate to have a murderer released, but Jesus crucified. So again, some commentators see these verses as a kind of parable, not something that is likely to be in real life. But the point is, once again, reconciliation is better achieved between people than having an outside party impose their view of justice upon them. The summation of what we need to take away from verses 21-26 to is this. Anger leads to the lack of peace and therefore the need for reconciliation. Anger, at least in the way we humans normally think of it, anger is wicked in Christ's eyes. But we are human beings. Should anger occur and peace is broken, then reconciliation must be sought even before seeking God for forgiveness for our anger. Further, reconciliation needs to be a transaction between two or more willing individuals whereby the reconciliation is reached not so much as an accommodation to avoid the courts as it is the right and godly attitude that as God-worshippers we ought to be striving for. Such a Godly attitude gives us all the tools we need to restore peace, or better yet, to avoid anger and strife in the first place. We'll continue with verse 27 and the matter of adultery next time.